Well, thanks for joining us tonight. If you have a Bible close by, or you're going to use your phone, um, or an iPad, or something like that, find Ephesians chapter 4. I do want to say to you, church family, that we miss you. It was good to be back in a limited capacity on Sunday uh, with two services and Uh, We had a good group here in the building. We had a good group that continued to join us online. And then now we're back to live stream only on on Wednesday night, tonight, and next week. And uh, I had almost gotten used to an empty room, and then having you here Sunday spoiled me. And so I'm missing you even more than normal uh, tonight, but we're glad that you're joining us. And uh, we're going to study from Ephesians 4. Over the last year on Wednesday nights, we've been studying about the life of David. And we've covered the life of David from beginning to end. We had a few more weeks in the calendar that we needed to fill in. And so I actually asked you guys, what do you want to study? We've got three Wednesday nights. What would you like to talk about? And uh, we posted that online. We asked you what songs you wanted to sing, and you guys voted on some of those songs. And Jake and and the, the crew are playing some of those and leading us in worship in some of those songs. One of the requests I got, and you guys sent me some great, requests, some great ideas and suggestions. Some of them I I may come back to later. But one of the suggestions was Ephesians 4.29. And Ephesians 4.29 says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That was the specific request. Could we talk about that one night? Uh, And that was an interesting request to me. And I thought, this is good. Let's take this and let's expand it just a little bit. We won't have time to go through the entire book of Ephesians, but maybe we can cover the the paragraph or two around it. And so what we're doing is looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, all the way down to verse 32. Last week we looked at 17 to 20. Tonight we're going to look at 20. We're going to cover that one twice. It's important. 20 to 24. And then next week, we'll wrap up this little mini-study, and we'll look at verse 25 to 32. Briefly, let me just review the lay of the land as far as the relationship goes between Paul and the church in Ephesus. Paul visited Ephesus for the first time on his second missionary journey. And you can read about this in Acts 19. It was a remarkable visit. When Paul came to Ephesus, he stayed for a long time, a very long time by Paul's standards. Several years he was there investing in these people. Uh, The Bible says that everyone in the region had the opportunity to hear the gospel, not only because they heard Paul, but because they heard people that Paul had sent out to preach. And so it was a great gospel movement. In the end, he was run out of town almost as a criminal, And the problem was that there was a a massive temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world in Ephesus. It was the temple to Artemis, and people in Ephesus would buy these silver figurines, these silver idols, and they would set these idols up in their home, and they would take them home as sort of a souvenir from the temple. So many people became followers of Jesus that essentially the idol shop, the gift shop at the temple of Artemis, went bankrupt, and they weren't making any money, and there was a guy named Demetrius, and he was in charge of the silversmiths guild, and he rallied a mob, and they ran Paul out of town. In the very next chapter, Paul sort of makes a few stops when he's run out of town. Acts 20, he visits Ephesus for the last time on his way back to Jerusalem, and it was a tearful visit. He knew he would not see his friends in Ephesus again. 
One of the things I told you last week is we know a lot, a, an awful lot about the book of Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, Paul's relationship with these people, the, the men who served as pastor in this church. I told you last week, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. We're studying it. He wrote two letters to Timothy, his protege, who he left behind in Ephesus and who pastored the church in Ephesus for a time. And we even talked about church tradition last week that says the apostle John ended up, when he left Jerusalem, he ended up in Ephesus pastoring and planning churches and preaching and teaching. And in the book of Revelation that John wrote, there's a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus through their pastor, through John. And so we know a lot about this church, the book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and Revelation. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt what Paul wanted for and from the people in Ephesus. He wanted his friends in Ephesus to walk differently than the Gentiles and differently than their old way of life. Right? This idea of your walk is the totality of your life, the overall direction that your life is headed. And Paul looked at his friends in Ephesus and he said, look, I want you to walk differently than the people in Ephesus who worship Artemis. Your life ought to look different than their life. And you're now a follower of Jesus, which means your life ought to look different than the way it used to look. There ought to be a change or a difference in your walk. That's what he wanted. Here's the hope of the book of Ephesians. It's the hope that Paul had for his friends. Jesus saves sinners and Jesus changes sinners. Jesus, in his grace and his mercy and his power, saves sinners. And Jesus, by his grace and his mercy and his power, changes sinners. And so just like we did last week, just like we'll do next week, let's read our passage, Ephesians 4, verse 17 down to 32. The scripture says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion 
that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the word of God. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we are so thankful for another opportunity to be together, to worship, to sing your praises, and Lord, as your people, to sit under the authority of your word. Father, we believe that this book is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of a bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Father, we pray that your word would do its work in our lives tonight. Father, we pray that the same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words would illumine our minds, open our eyes to understand and to apply these things to our lives. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the fact that we're doing this service over live stream is just one reminder of many in your lives that the coronavirus has changed a lot of things over the last few weeks. Uh, We were talking before we... Uh, began the worship service after we had rehearsed and sound checked about graduations and how graduations are going to look different this year and how school looks different. And when I think about the changes that the coronavirus has brought, the, the first thing that comes to mind is church and the differences that we are experiencing as a church family. And probably a close second for me is school. My kids this last school year moved over to Compass Academy. They're having a great school year, and they have not been so thrilled to finish the year at the Coleman Annex, the Coleman campus of Compass Academy. And they've been working through these online assignments and doing these things, and they can see the finish line at the end. But I've been reminded over the last few weeks of something that our teachers know very, very well, is that different kids learn in different ways. We have four kids at our house. We have an eighth grader and a fourth grader and a third grader and a rolling into kindergartner, and they all learn a little bit differently. And sometimes you hear teachers talk about learning styles, and it's just a way to try to wrap your mind around how different kids process things. And so sometimes teachers will talk about visual learners, and they will say, some learners, some students need to see something demonstrated or they need to read it they need to they need to be able to visualize it other learners are auditory learners they need to hear it they need you to say it out loud and they need to process in that way others use their hands kinesthetic learners they want to do it they need to actually get their hands on what they're learning in order to process sometimes you hear teachers talk about thinking of learning styles solitary or social learning Maybe this student learns better alone. They don't need a bunch of voices around them clamoring and making noise and helping them figure something out. They need to figure it out themselves. Others learn better in a group. They learn from the ideas and the the mistakes and the successes of others, and that's how they process. Maybe you're a, a logical learner. Maybe things begin to click for you as you roll them around in your head silently. Or maybe you're a, an auditory learner. Or maybe a, we could use the word verbal learner. You need to say it out loud. Not only do you need to hear it or do it or think about it, but you just need to say it out loud. And the act of saying it 
helps you learn it. I know many Sunday school teachers would say, I learn my lesson best when I say it out loud to the classroom. And we've learned this in our house. Different students learn in different ways. And when you're in an eighth grade studying this subject, you learn in one way. And when you're in kindergarten or going into kindergarten, learning things for the first time, maybe it's a little bit different. When you think about Paul and you think about learning styles, we know that there were times when Paul didn't change the gospel message, but he changed his approach depending on the people that he was talking to. You can look at how Paul would preach in a town when he went to the synagogue compared to how he preached when he went to Athens and he spoke to non-Jewish people. He approached those audiences very differently. He understood this idea of thinking about your audience. And we can detect some of his pedagogical methods in the Bible. We know that Paul was a teacher. He had the heart of a teacher. And look what he says in verse 20. He's told the the Ephesians, don't walk like the Gentiles. And then he describes how the Gentiles walk. Don't do what they do. This is what they do. And look what he says in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. He reminded the Ephesians that they quote, learned Christ. And we talked about this phrase last week. It's an odd phrase. Normally, the way we would say this in quote-unquote proper English is that you learn information. You learn a skill. And if you're talking about a person, we might say something like, well, I met that person, or I got to know that person. This is not just an awkward English translation. This is the English translators bringing out the awkwardness in what Paul is saying. This phrase, learning a person, is not found anywhere else in the Bible. And it's almost like Paul is using a mashup of words to make a point. And the point that he's trying to make is this. Those who have learned Christ have entered into a relationship with Christ. Learning Christ is not just about ideas and truths and doctrines. It's about all of that. But it's also about a relationship with a person. When I was in elementary school, my favorite thing, two things in all the world, were professional wrestling and baseball cards. And I've talked to you about professional wrestling. Uh, I'll talk to you about baseball cards tonight. I loved baseball cards. There was a shop Uh, just across the street from where I lived growing up, and it was called the Dome, and it was a domed building, and it was a play on the the appearance of the building and a play on the idea of a domed baseball stadium, and they sold baseball cards. My friends and I would ride our bikes there, and we would spend hours upon hours upon hours looking at cards and talking about cards and buying cards and trading cards and getting our Beckett out and looking up the value of cards and negotiating deals and talking about players and learning the stats and thinking about this brand of cards versus that brand of cards. Look, we had an incredible amount of absolutely useless information stored in our heads. We might have struggled with the seven times multiplication facts, but we had baseball cards down backwards and frontwards. What we did not know were any professional baseball players. None of them. 
And maybe the closest that I ever got to knowing, personally, a professional baseball player, and is not very close at all, uh, is an interaction I had with a man named Dave Dravecki. Somebody gave me a uh, autobiography of Dave Dravecki. He was a pitcher for the Giants. Uh, not fantastic as a pitcher, but pretty good. He got cancer in his arm. He lost his arm. He had to have his arm amputated. He rehabbed. He trained. He made it all the way back to the majors. It was a short stint back in the majors, but he actually pitched with one arm in the major leagues, won a game in the major leagues before an injury forced him to retire. And in this autobiography, it said, if you send a baseball card to Dave Dravecki in the mail at this address, he'll sign it and he'll mail it back to you. And I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. I just happen to have a Topps Dave Dravecki baseball card. That's not a picture of my card, but that's the card I have at home in my garage in a box with all the other cards that I've hung on to. And I mailed it to him and he signed it And he mailed it back. That's as close as I ever got to knowing a professional baseball player. What Paul's talking about here is not just learning facts. It's not do you have the Jesus action figure or the Jesus baseball card and you know how it works and you know the special features and you know these stories. What he's really talking about is a relationship. You learned Christ. John talks about this, pastor of the church in Ephesus at one point. He talks about it in the Gospel of John. He's quoting Jesus. and He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Look, in a real sense, this is the point of all of it. This is the point of life. This is the point of why we meet together on Sunday mornings. It's the point of why we do a live stream or a recorded service when we can't meet together. It's because we want people to know God, to have a relationship with God. And we believe that happens when you know Jesus, when you learn Christ. How does that relationship come about today? You can't go visit Jesus, like you would visit a friend. You can't send your baseball card to Jesus in the mail and ask him to sign it and send it back to you. Here's how it happens. Paul explains it. This relationship is established through hearing and teaching. Hearing and teaching. That's how you meet Jesus. That's how you learn Christ. Look at verse 21. Verse 20, that's not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. And Paul knew for a fact that they had heard and they had been taught. He was the one who did it. That's why he came to Ephesus. Paul was not on a sightseeing trip of the Mediterranean. He wasn't just on an adventure looking for a great picture to post on his Instagram page thinking, oh, the temple of Artemis, this will do nicely. He stopped in this place because there were lost people there, Jews and Gentiles, who needed to learn Christ. They needed to hear about Jesus. They needed to be taught about Jesus. Parents and grandparents, this is why you bring your kids and your grandkids to church. It's not just to civilize them, because i got news for you. Church is a poor place to civilize your kids. 
You bring them here so that they can hear about Jesus. So they can be taught about Jesus. This is why we send mission teams to Kenya or to Canada or to Alaska so that people can hear and be taught about Jesus. It's why we ask you to go to your place of work or the, the place you go to school and share with your classmates and share with your coworkers the truth about Jesus. They need to hear and they need to be taught about Jesus. It's why you invite people to church, and when you can't invite them to church, you share a, a church live stream on your page, and you invite your friends and your family, and you say, hey, I want you to join me here. It's because we want people to hear, and we want people to be taught. Paul explains this nicely in Romans 10, verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how you have faith in Jesus. You have to hear the good news. You have to be taught about Jesus. You need to hear, you need to be taught, and you need to be taught the truth. This relationship must be based on the truth. And there's a danger here. Look what Paul says in verse 21. Assuming, he says, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. There are a lot of people talking about Jesus. For the last 2,000 years, people have written songs. They've hammered out books. They've given talks. They've brought it up in casual conversation. But what Paul is saying is not any old version of Jesus will do. What you need to hear and be taught is the truth about Jesus. So back in the old days... Uh, we had these things that would show up on your doorstep occasionally called phone books, and they were just massive bricks of paper. More massive the larger the city you lived in, maybe smaller if you lived in a small community. And if you needed to know somebody's address or phone number, you would look it up in the white pages. And if you were looking for a business, you would turn to the yellow pages. And if you wanted the Pizza Hut coupon, you would turn all the way to the back and pull out the Pizza Hut coupon. But if you lived in a community of any decent size, and if you had a relatively normal name, there was a pretty good chance that you would open to the white pages and you would find the name you're looking for, maybe your name, and there would be more than one person in that community, in the phone book, with that name. That's how it happened in the old days. In the new days, today, we have things like Google and Facebook. And you can get on Facebook and you can say, I'm going to try to find my friend from high school, and you type in that name, and Facebook says, we have found 5,000 people in the United States with this name. Which one would you like to be friends with? You can do the same thing on Google. You can type in your name on Google. I bet most of you have done that at some point in time, just to see what the internet knows about you. Can it find you? It can. It knows you. And Google will pull up all sorts of people with your name. I just did a quick search today, Landon Coleman. There's a pathologist who works at the University of Utah. Not me. There's a dermatologist who lives in Salt Lake City. There's an industrial equipment salesman in North Carolina. And apparently there's a highly, recru highly recruited high school football star in Florida. Those were the first four that came up after myself. None of them 
are the Landon Coleman that lives in Odessa, is married to Brooke, is principaling the Coleman Annex of Compass Academy right now, and pastoring via live stream to his church at Emmanuel Odessa. It's not the same guy. You can talk to a lot of people about Jesus. You can buy books, even ones at the Christian bookstore. You can find them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can find podcasts. You can find videos and live streams shared on social media. Paul just reminds his friends, yes, you need to hear about Jesus. Yes, you need to be taught about Jesus. But make sure we're talking about the right Jesus. Not any version of Jesus will do. He's concerned about the truth that is in Jesus. Now, all of that translates into an interesting concept as we move forward in the passage. Paul wanted his friends in Ephesus to think about the Christian walk or the Christian life in terms of putting off and putting on. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, put off your old self. And look what he says in verse 24. Put on the new self. Literally, Paul is using words that you would normally use to describe changing clothes. Take off those clothes, put on these clothes. Except Paul's not talking about clothes. He says, take off the old self, put on the new self. So I told you, when I was in grade school, it was pro wrestling and baseball cards. Now I'm 38 And my favorite thing to do in the world besides church, besides family, is mow my lawn. I love mowing the grass. I enjoy doing it. Some of you don't like mowing the lawn. We can tell when we drive by your house. We look at your grass and we say, that's not their thing. I like doing it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And the last thing I do when I mow my lawn is mow the alley. And if you've ever mowed an alley in West Texas, you know that when you're done, you're dirty. Because pretty much you're mowing dirt. And you just kick up this huge cloud of caliche dirt. And it's nasty. And it gets in your nose and your eyes and your ears and everywhere. And when you're done mowing the alley, the first thing you need to do is go in and take off your dirty clothes. Take a shower. And by all means, don't put the dirty clothes back on. Put on new clothes. That's the idea that Paul's talking about here. You need to take this off. It's old, he says. He says, this is your former manner of life, and it's corrupt with deceitful desires. Take it off. Don't put it back on. Instead, put on the new self. Paul says it's made in the likeness of God. It is righteous, and it is holy. Take one thing off and put one thing on. Several things to be clear about here. The first is this. God creates the new self in us. We don't create it ourselves. You can't listen to what Paul's saying here and ignore everything else that's said in the book, everything else that's said in the Bible. We won't look these verses up, but in Ezekiel 36, the prophet says it's God. He's looking forward to the day when God would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We don't do that for ourselves. God does that for us. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That comes from above, Nicodemus. You obviously can't enter into your mother's womb a second time. This is something that God does. You can look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18. He says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and this is from God. He does that. The Bible word for it is regeneration. 
You're born again. God makes you new. But the Bible also says that on the heels of regeneration comes something called sanctification. Doesn't happen in a moment. It's not complete in an instant. It takes time and it takes effort and it takes struggle. The Bible is clear that Christians bear responsibility for their progress in spiritual matters, not for their salvation. But once they're saved and born again, we bear some genuine, real responsibility for the progress that we make in spiritual matters. It's why Paul writes this letter and says, put this off and put this on. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians, you can look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. He's described our sinfulness in verse 1, 2, and 3, and the conclusion he draws is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the act of God. You don't do that. God makes you new. God makes you alive. God is the author of regeneration. We don't manipulate that or contrive that or control that. God does it. And then without blinking, two chapters later, he tells his friends, you need to put this off and you need to put this on. There is no biblical category for a person who has been born again who was dead in sins, and God made them alive. There's no biblical category for a person who has experienced that, who is not engaging in this struggle of putting off and putting on. Regeneration leads to sanctification. And you can think about it with an analogy from the world of sports. We're familiar with sports. It's a thing that we used to do before coronavirus kicked us out of stadiums. Think about a famous player signing with a new team. Think about Tom Brady signing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Typically, when a new player signs with a new team, they have a a press conference of sorts, and the owner gives a speech, and the player gives a speech, and nobody really cares what they're saying. Everyone is there for one thing, and it's a picture of the player holding up or sometimes putting on their new jersey for their new team. Can you imagine a press conference held in Tampa Bay, Florida with Tom Brady and all the ownership and the coaching staff of the Buccaneers and Brady steps up to the podium and he's wearing a Patriots jersey. And he says, I'm so excited to be a Buccaneer. Can't wait. I am thrilled to be here. I'm going to hang on to this jersey for a while. New England Patriots, but I'm really glad to be a buck. And can you imagine him running out to his first practice wearing his Patriots helmet? Can you imagine him taking the field for his first game whenever that happens and he's still wearing his Patriots uniform? It's unthinkable. You've switched teams. When you do that, you put on the new jersey. That's essentially what Paul's saying. When you're born again, when God takes you and you're dead in your sins and he makes you alive, you're going to put this off and you're going to put this on and we bear some of that responsibility. Here's part of our problem, and we're just going to mention this briefly. 
often we try to put off sinful behavior without also putting on obedient behavior. Meaning, we try to stop doing bad things, but we don't really commit ourselves to pursuing God in obedience. And I just tell you now, I'll spoil the whole message next week. That doesn't work. It ends in frustration and it ends in failure. If you're going to put off the old, you have also got to put on the new. And next week we'll look at verse 25 to 30 and we'll talk about specifics. Don't do this. Do this. Stop doing this and do that. Take this off and put this on. You've got to do both. Here's where we'll end. One little thought here about verse 23. Paul wanted his friends in Ephesus to remember that the Christian walk involved inward renewal. Look what he says in verse 23. He says he wants them to be renewed in the spirit of their or your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's a few commentators that really try to get in the weeds about the word spirit and the word mind, and I don't really think that's the place you get in the weeds in this passage. I think the Bible is pretty consistent. It uses words like spirit, soul, mind, heart. They all sort of describe the same thing most of the time. It's not like a big distinction between them. It's the immaterial inward part of who we are, the heart, the mind, the soul. It's what Jesus is driving at when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He's saying this has got to start from within and work itself out. It can't just be an external thing. And note, in this passage, Christians are commanded to pursue this inward Renewal. I mean, it's set before us as something that we seek after, that we chase after, we pursue it. Verse 23, be renewed. Be renewed. Think about your mom. And think about that look that your mom would give you sometimes. When your mom would look at you with that look and say, be quiet. Be nice. Be obedient. Be still. Your mom was not making a suggestion. She was giving you a command. Paul's not making a suggestion. He's telling the Ephesians, be renewed. At the same time, and this is a mystery, ultimately God is responsible for the inward renewal of our new self. This is just a a mystery as Paul describes it, and we live with this tension. He tells us, be renewed. It's something we pursue. But this word renewed in the original Greek is a passive infinitive, meaning it's something that happens to us. It's not something we do ourselves. It's something that comes from outside of us and is done in us and through us. God does it. God does this work of renewal. Your pastor doesn't do it. Your Sunday school teacher doesn't do it. Your worship leader doesn't do it. We can't manufacture it in you or ourselves. We pursue it individually and corporately, but ultimately we know that God is responsible. Here's the clear part. We'll end with this. External 
behavior modification is not the goal of the Christian life. Paul's going to give us a, a laundry list next week. A lot of specifics. And the temptation next week is going to be to look at verse 25 to 32. And really, you could keep going through the rest of the book at all the specifics and say, oh, man, I got my work cut out for me. I got a lot of things that I need to start thinking about. Here's my spiritual to-do list. The goal of the Christian life is not that you check off all the external boxes on your spiritual to-do list. The goal of the Christian life is that you are transformed and changed from the inside out. And the hope of the book of Ephesians, this is where we started, the big idea of the passage, the big idea of the book, tells us how does this transformation take place? The answer is Jesus. He saves sinners from their sins and he changes us. He renews us. In the spirit of our minds, he makes us new. He's the one at work in us as we're putting off the old and putting on the new. It's not just external behaviors changing. It's us on the inside that's changing. 